Bits and Deed Pod, a podcast about indie tabletop role-playing games where I interview creators about their games and inspirations and about the theory, process and practice of game design. My name is Mark Shepard, your host today and always, and your friendly local indie enthusiast. Friends, this is the last episode of Yes Indeed Pod of 2021, or as I like to call it, Season 2. It's been a complete blast, so thank you so much for listening to all of my guests and my ramblings too. That you're all still listening and saying nice things about me too, or even supporting me monetarily means the absolute world to me. And so, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much, and see you, metaphorically, in the new year for Season 3. This week, we're talking to Jay Dragon of Possum Creek Games, creator of Sleepaway, Wanderhome, and the forthcoming Yazaba's Bed and Breakfast. We also talked about how the RPG zeitgeist can be a contrast in reaction to the awful events of the real world. It was a great and enlightening chat, so enjoy. And now that's out of my head and into yours, let's talk indie. So, today we're talking to Jay Dragon. Hi there, Jay, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks so much for having me. Oh, absolutely no problem. It's a delight to talk to you. My name is Jay Dragon. I am a queer game designer and publisher at Possum Creek Games. I'm the editorial director. I'm most well known for Wander Home and also Sleep Away and assorted other things. Yeah, I write tabletop role-playing games about liminality, community, identity, and the magic of the mundane. Oh, you're a pretty well-respected voice in the scene, so, you know, it's good to have you on to talk. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild to be that. Two years ago, I was a nobody, so uh, time flies <laughs> and all that. <laughs> Everybody has to be a nobody sometime, right? So <laughs> true, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's well-deserved, I think, yeah, you know, your games get a lot of a lot of respect, a lot of credibility for being excellent. So, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'd sort of forgotten that you'd done Sleep Away as well, one mm-hmm. of the cooler games that came out last year, I think it was. It was actually two years ago. Time has become warped and destroyed, but that was my first Kickstarter project. Sleep Away was basically the first time I published something. Yeah. And people really liked it. And I was like, wow, that's neat. I guess I should do something else. Maybe I should, uh, you know, make a game about some <laughs> animals. And then people really liked that one. <laughs> do you want to tell us a little bit about Sleep Sleepaway before we get into one. Yeah, because, sure. Uh, I think it's a cool game. So. Yeah. Uh, Sleepaway was my first foray with Belonging Outside Belonging, which is uh, Avery and Ben's system that's diceless and GMless uh, or GM full. Sleepaway is a queer horror game about summer camp counselors trying to protect their kids from this monstrous, shadowy, shape shifting creature called the Lindworm. I've been talking about it a lot on my Discord and such because people have been, you know, getting into it and like asking questions and like picking it apart and like thinking about it. And it's fun because I feel like style wise and like even in terms of some of the mechanics I feel very distant from it like it's very near and dear to my heart but it's also like it's my first book and so I feel very like oh it's my it's my beautiful child it's my beautiful flawed kind of lumpy at the edges child yeah. <laughs> whereas Wanderhome is like the sleek you know like oh look at look at her you know <laughs> she could kill someone <laughs> it got a lot of um respect and uh, yeah. I think people were really interested interested in it yeah i think it's one of the bigger games that's come out of the sort of belonging outside belonging movement i guess it could be called yeah i don't really love belong outside belonging as much as i did a couple years ago but i think i'm kind of one of the premier bob writers and like a lot of the other folks who are also among the premier bob writers like end up kind of doing stuff with possum creek some of my other favorite bob games like our haunt or balak bayan or grand mm-hmm. Guignol or you know venture you know they kind of end up in possum creek's orbit uh in one form or another we're really trying to push bob to its limits and like i've certainly found its limits and i certainly i don't think i'll be doing any other big games in bob just because i feel like 
I've hit the limits of this space, but yeah, I love it as a core. I love it as a base, and I love the cool stuff it enables people to do really easily. I, I think it's a really interesting system. I mean, you mm-hmm. mentioned Valley Bayan and Gran Guignol, yeah, mm-hmm. both people we've interviewed this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh like, yeah, wonderful. So that's folks. kind of cool that we now get to <laughs> come back to speak to the people who made mm-hmm. Sleepaway and other other Possum Creek games. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's cool. You know, um, I was very excited initially when I read Dream of Skew. I thought mm-hmm. this is a really cool idea, and then I I heard Luke of Wildwood Games playing it as part of Feelings First and thought, mm-hmm. yeah, this is definitely the kind of game that I'm interested in and mm-hmm. that I'd be really interested in hacking as well. Because it's kind yeah. of got all these like really interesting moving parts and it mm-hmm. seems so simple from the outset. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've never actually found the idea of a game that I would like to make in that system. So what sort of games do you think it, it serves well? I think B.O.B., right? You know, cause the obligatory, uh, I think you could probably do anything with anything, but... B.O.B. favors games where the practical consequences are not outside of your control. Yeah. And where it's much more focused on emotional consequences and creating trouble for yourself. Right, right. At its best, you know, it's really good for for games about communities. I think that the token system is really effective at kind of focusing on people's feelings in a way that's... Like, I talk a little bit about this in Wander Home, but, like, the whole idea of success and failure isn't the only model by which we can discuss the world around us. Like, success and failure, like, one approach that's almost scholastic. To me, when I think of success and failure, it's like, oh, you know, in, like, my daily life, I don't often fail. Like, if I don't get groceries today, that doesn't mean I I failed my grocery check. It means I did something else today. (laughs) Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. I don't often experience, like, success and failure. And I think B.O.B. is a system that doesn't really think about success and failure. It's much more focused on making emotional sacrifices in order to gain emotional strength. Yeah. On that lens, I think it really favors games that are about tight-knit groups of very messy people. Such as your classic Dream Askew itself being about a queer community in the unfolding apocalypse, for instance. Yeah, or, you know, Sleepaway being a bunch of summer camp counselors who, like, have their messy dynamics, or, you know, Grand Guignol being, like, the protagonists of this tangled gothic novel. Like, B.O.B. really sets itself up for stories about people where it's, like, you really want to give yourself temporary setbacks and you want uh-huh. to do it early and you want to get the payoff later. Yeah. I think that's that's one of the reasons why I'm kind of starting to hit my limit on it. I've kind of saturated a bit too much, but I think that it's incredible strength is that it's a game that is very easy to design. It is a system that is very forgiving to design in. Yeah. Because it offloads a lot of technical complexity into the prose. Yes. If I am a good prose writer, right? Like if I'm a good traditional author or poet, that does not mean I am a good forged in the dark designer. Uh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> like Ernest Hemingway, whoever, you know, like any of these folks could not guarantee design a forged in the dark game well. But B.O.B., if you are someone who is good at capturing the interiority of characters' lives and you are good at capturing a kind of particular symbolic environment, you will design a competent B.O.B. game. Yeah. You won't fuck it up. As long as you, like, have that skill, you'll be all right. Yeah. And so I think that B.O.B. is really forgiving that way and is really good for folks who want to kind of get integrated in design, especially from a non-traditional angle. Hmm. And I think that's why Avery put a whole section in Dream of Dream Apart about writing B.O.B., because I think she recognized both that and also that 
Dream Ski Dream Apart is the most simple possible form of B.O.B. Yeah. What she pitches there is like, there is so much you can do with it design wise that she intentionally doesn't do. Mm-hmm. When you read Dream Askew, you're, or like you play Dream Askew, you're like, wow, that's cool. It's missing a certain something. And I don't know if that was Avery's intent, but I think it is part of why there are a lot of people who enjoy designing in it is because you're like, well, what is that certain something that Dream Askew is missing that I get to add? Yeah. It's like the 90% thing where you feel emboldened to add that last little bit. So coloring in that sketch, if you like, or just adding highlights. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, like, I'm very intimidated by Blades in the Dark. I'm scared to write a Forge in the Dark game because it's such a... The system is, like, it's done. (laughs) Yeah, it's very tight, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, what do I have to contribute to Blades in the Dark that Harper has not already contributed to Blades in the Dark? It doesn't beg for me to design in it the way way Blong said Blonging did. I agree with you. Forge in the Dark is, like, it's a classically difficult system to deal with isn't it because yeah it's yeah very very tightly wound mm-hmm. it's kind of it's got so many moving parts you know mm-hmm, it's, there's mm-hmm. a lot to think about and even yeah. if you build it up play test by play mm-hmm. test in terms of like mm-hmm. mechanic by mechanic that's still going to take mm-hmm. you a long time to get to a full system yeah. before you even start mm-hmm. thinking about what you want to change and what pros yeah. you want to color it with mm-hmm. whereas you know sort of to me dream askew and belonging outside belonging looks leaner on the outside but actually there's mm-hmm. a lot of kind of group dynamic complexity that comes out of it Mm -hmm. being a no dice and no masters game well i think the reason why i'm kind of getting tired of bob and designing for it is because i've kind of started hitting this point where there's kind of a a challenge in bob that avery i think attempted to address but perhaps did not i think fully address or like there are other takes on it that might be more i feel like every single system has like this little hiccup point i feel like a lot of bobs is that it expects the group to collectively facilitate. Yeah. And that's very good when everyone is at kind of an equivalent level of comfort with the system. Yeah. But overwhelmingly, I've found there will be an asymmetric familiarity level, right? Which is, yeah. I think, why the GM role is so popular and why most Wander Home games have a guide is because there's an asymmetric familiarity level and having someone who is more familiar also assist in facilitation makes the game flow much better. Yeah. And I think that you don't have to have the most experienced person be the facilitator as well, but I think that many of my favorite B.O.B. games are in one way or another trying to solve that challenge where it's like... Setting elements are not intuitive for new players. They are absolutely not. And so a lot of BOB games have to go, well, if setting elements are kind of tricky, what's another solution? What's another way to approach them to make them more comfortable? Mm. Um, and I've come up with my answers. Jami has come up with his answers. Luke has come up with their answers. I've, you know, Riley's done stuff. Everyone's kind of done their stuff to kind of in one way or another solve that challenge. I think that asymmetry is really interesting because, you know, typically I think with indie games in particular, you kind of have this thing where, like, if you are an indie game group, you probably mm-hmm. aren't playing long games of indie campaigns. You're probably playing mm-hmm. short mini campaigns or even just one shots. Mm-hmm. And it's generally the person who brings the game to the table who is going to have that high level of mm-hmm. skill, if you like, or at mm-hmm. least familiarity. And that is going to make the experience really different for everybody else because it's not like it will never work like everybody agrees to play one game that's not really how table groups work is it i mean maybe at a convention but that's a different dynamic as well and so i think it's interesting to think about that kind of asymmetry and why that maybe doesn't work 
necessarily when you don't have a facilitator or a GM role. Yeah, I found in my experience, Wanderhome works really well, like either guided or unguided. But when I'm playing with a group of people I don't know, I much prefer having a guide because having someone who can kind of just help be like, hey, everyone, we've spent a little too long character creation. You know, hey, everyone, all right, you know, here we are in a place that kind of just yeah. Yeah. pulling it together, kind of like in the same way that it's it's just helpful having like a project manager or a team lead or just someone who can unify everything. And then if I'm playing with my friends, I like having less of a guide or maybe no guide at all because it's like we all know what's up. We know how to integrate this stuff it's fine, we've got this. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, we're sort of skirting around the idea of Wonder Home there. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the game that shall not be named. <laughs> Wonder Home is an interesting game to me because uh, a few months ago I put a thread on Twitter asking what games I should play with my children and Wonder Home came back as overwhelmingly the the answer to that. Fascinating. <laughs> that's so interesting. Would you like to give a little bit of an introduction as to what Wonder Home is? And then we can leave. Yeah. Oh my god, that's that's such an interesting. I almost disagree with that, but yeah, let me let's talk about Wander Home. Wander Home is a pastoral fantasy RPG about traveling animal folk moving through the beautiful world of Haith. It is GM agnostic. It is uh, no dice, no masters. No dice, occasionally a little bit of a master if you want. <laughs> Less catchy. Yeah, <laughs> not quite the same ring. Uh, and you play as folks like. The poet or, you know, the shepherd or the ragamuffin or the veteran as you move through this world growing slowly over time as you go from place to place. It sounds to me like Redwall, you know. Uh, I don't know if you've read those novels. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a lot like the uh, like chunks of Redwall. It's, um... Yeah. <laughs> Redwall is a very violent book series, and I think that its violence is easy to lose in nostalgia, but I'm very critical of Jock in with Redwall, but... I don't have to analyze Redwall for you here, but Wanderhome draws inspiration from Redwall. It also draws inspiration, like, in terms of the animal folk themselves, draws inspiration from stuff like Animal Crossing uh, or, you know, Wind in the Willows, and then also a lot of inspiration from uh, certain Miyazaki movies like Kiki's Delivery Service or My Neighbor Totoro, and then additionally, like, Moomin's. I always use Kiki's Delivery Service as, like, my pitch for what a Wander Home session is like, because it's like, you are traveling from some unfamiliar place, you know, you arrive in this new place where you're unfamiliar, you find some folks who offer you hospitality, you learn the place and you help out, and you kind of, you know, establish yourself there, and then in Wander Home, eventually you move on to somewhere else. Yeah, okay. And Kiki's is kind of a good sense of what that's like, because I think oftentimes in tabletop RPGs, we don't really know what to picture when someone says non-violent or non-combat. Uh, and so I think Kiki's, Kiki's is a good grounding point often, uh, even if it's not really the same. I think it's really interesting to kind of look at, the, I, I see a quite a few of these sort of animal, kind of sweet, non-violent pastoral games yeah. coming to the fore now. And I think it's really, mm-hmm. I think it's really cool. Uh, I think it's really valid. Mm-hmm. And uh, is, yeah. is there a reason you opted for this kind of aesthetic or was it just the touchstones that kind of inspired you? So originally Wander Home was post-apocalyptic and there was some stuff that happened early 2020 that made me really not want it to be post-apocalyptic. Mm. Um, <laughs> Fair. Yeah. You can still feel a little bit of the edge of that if you look closely at it. I think the reason I chose animal people in general is because animals have different politics to them. Right. That the animal body is different than the human body. And it creates a lot more of a safety net in terms of exploring like the animal body politic, you know, where it's like 
if you choose to play as a wolf, you can explore what it's like to be a character who someone might assume is aggressive without having to directly correlate that or, you know, metaphoricize that into real world systemic oppression. It's a little bit of a safety net where you can still play in that space without being forced to draw an allegorical line that then becomes much harder to navigate and much more fraught to navigate. I chose animals for that reason. And also because they're cute and they're charming and it let me have a lot of cool animals in the illustrations, (laughs) which was certainly a big part of the consideration. Easy to find artists, right? (laughs) Easy to find artists. Also, like, a thing I think about a lot is that, like, when we talk about, like, gender and race in kind of our public consciousness, like, gender, for example, is a thing that is a huge number of discrete concepts that get bundled down into one word. And by saying that word, I get to evoke all of those concepts. So if I told you this water bottle is a girl... I'm doing something to that water bottle. And in your head, the way you relate to that water bottle changes subtly because I've gendered it. So the same way, like in different romance languages, you know, a bridge might be feminine in one language, masculine in another. And the way they conceptualize that bridge would be different. Yeah. And the thing about that, though, is that that has very big consequences, right? Because the act of gendering something... Well, you know, in the case of water bottles, informative, in the case of people, can be violent. And so I'm interested in what other language can we use where if I tell you, you know, this thing is that thing, if I, you know, apply the symbol onto the object, what other concepts can I use that will allow me to explore the space of what is it like to have a symbol applied to you, but in a way that isn't the violence that we see in life? And so animals are kind of a good way for that, right? Like if I tell you, oh, this water bottle is a frog... <laughs> a little odd (laughs) and it's maybe it's not the same strength as if i say this water bottle is a girl but if i say this water bottle is a frog it's it's got a different shape to it in your head than if i say oh this water bottle is a buffalo they're both kind of absurd things to say about object right (laughs) in in which case kind of like the first one you are applying very strong Mm -hmm. concepts potentially that as you said could result in you know objectifying Mm -hmm. it or turning it into sort of systemic Mm -hmm. oppression whereas saying it's a frog it's even more Mm -hmm. bizarre Mm -hmm. in a way and forces you to look at different aspects of that and concepts that you Mm -hmm. want to look at you're painting them through the lens of looking at them from i don't know the traits of different kinds of animals and that is i think one of the big tricks oftentimes in game design is you want to give access to symbols uh without forcing those symbols in wanderham for example uh if i choose to play as a character who yeah is a wolf and i choose to examine that wolf you know like, oh you know that wolf kind of you know conceptually it would be assumed to be aggressive but actually they're very timid and skittish i could use that as a lens to explore my trans femininity you know a black man could use that you know kind of through that lens of stereotyping yeah you know if you're a trans man you could use it in a very different way than like a trans woman would it's like one symbol right the idea of this wolf can mean different things to different people. Yeah. And in a traditional book, in a novel, you kind of want to give that a little bit more rigidity. Yeah. But in a tabletop game, by having it be very flexible, you know, when people actually play the game, they get to ground it. They get to choose how they want to ground it. And it is it is almost, in a sense, like a safety tool, right? That they get to choose how they ground it. And, like, maybe you want to just play a game where a wolf is a wolf and there's no meaning there. And that's also good. Like, that also works fine. But the fact that it's a free-floating symbol is really productive. Yeah, I think that kind of detached symbolism is, is that's very interesting. How explicit are you about that in the prose of the writing different character types? Do you kind of vaguely hint at symbols? Do you explicitly point to them or do you leave it more 
open than even vagueness. The trick that I found, right, is basically like I try to have a solid mix. Yeah. Where sometimes I have symbols that I think are very uh, clear cut. Like if we go back to Sleepaway, the lindworm is a very clear cut symbol. I'm explicit in the text that the lindworm is a metaphor for systemic violence and cycles of trauma. Yeah. And, you know, on a personal level, the lindworm is very reminiscent of my own traumas and my own violences inflicted upon me, slightly allegoricized to make it about physical violence instead of other forms of violence. And that's a very explicit symbol. You know, in Sleepaway, for example, there's the Underhill King, who is this, you know, muscular king with a, a skeletal stag's head who lives beneath the mountains with his ghosts and his satyrs. And he sits in, you know, a hallway that looks like a burial mound. And he will sword fight you if you wish to pass him. Um, and so like, what does he mean exactly? He means death, perhaps. Maybe he's about masculinity. Maybe he's about authority. Maybe he's about something else. He's a little free floating. It's clear he means something. Maybe he does mean femininity. I don't know, but like, it's, it's a space where you get to do kind of the last little bit of work to ground him. Yeah. I think there's even stuff in Sleep Away where it's like, what exactly does this mean? I'm not clear at all. You know what I mean? Like, what does it mean to say my gender is a swamp thing? It's like, okay, I've got my real life inspiration, but that is abstract to the point where it is a free floating little idea and I get to pull it down from the sky and put it wherever I want. Yeah, I get where you're coming from with that. That's very interesting. The play group adds its own highlights to it. And, you know, if you don't want to mm-hmm. allegorize something, then, yeah, you don't have to allegorize anything. You can play it straight if you want to. Yeah, exactly. I think it kind of, in a roundabout way, brings me back to what I said at the start of when we were talking about Wonder Home. In that about two weeks into the Avatar Kickstarter, and it had already made billions of gajillions of dollars. <laughs> More money than God, yeah. At that point, I was like, well, I could buy that game or I could spend money on indie games that i think my kids will actually really enjoy Mm -hmm. so i said what would be good only caveats non-violent and not D &D." and Mm -hmm. overwhelmingly people were like i think wonder home is the game that you should try from what you've described i think that kind of uh, aesthetic would be really nice for my kids but maybe i'm missing the point (laughs) no no i think you're right i think it is the thing that's hard with kids is that i think I think Wander Home is a good family game. And I think actually on reflection, you're right to run it with your kids. If your kids are on the younger side, like if they are younger than I think like six or seven, they might need help with some of the bigger words. It's not written with yeah. kids in mind. I think that's oftentimes where I clarify because I think people assume it's a game for kids when the reality is that it is a game that kids can enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. If, when your requirements are non-violent, non dnd I think Wander Home, and, you know, appropriate with kids, I think Wander Home fits the bill to a T. I think people oftentimes assume that it is exclusively for kids or that, like, kids are the, my main audience, which is incorrect because I think it's much more, like, the people who connect with it the most tend to be nostalgic adults, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't know yeah. about how you were when I was a kid, but when I was, like, you know, 10 years old... I don't want to play, you know, Forest Bunny Rabbit Adventures. I want to play Turbo Max Ego Death 16, you know, Space Marines Kill Werewolf Vampires. Like, sure. <laughs> I guess maybe when I say that I don't always think Wander Home is good for kids. I mean, it wouldn't have been good for me as a kid. I would not have connected with it. I would have enjoyed reading it, but I wouldn't have necessarily enjoyed playing it. But also, (laughs) I realize my experiences are not universal. Sure. I think it's a good game to run with kids. I also just think uh, I get a little 
tired and people assume it is only for kids, which I don't, I think you are totally aware of that distinction. Um, but I think absolutely, you know, every once in a while yeah. someone assumes and I'm like, no. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You sort of mentioned there what kids are like at different ages. I think mm-hmm. my six-year-old would probably engage really well with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My four-year-old probably not so much. Mm-hmm. But when yeah. I was uh, eight, nine, ten, eleven, mm-hmm. let's say, I-, I was reading The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and mm-hmm. that kind of journeying aspect and going yeah. from interesting place to interesting place and kind of mm-hmm. having a sort of hero's journey mm-hmm. narrative condensed yeah. and stretched over i don't know an interminable mm-hmm. number of pages that really appeals to me and i'm like i really i really enjoyed that and i think wonder home would probably have been the perfect game for me when i was growing up right? yes if that kind of stuff was was what you wanted as a kid i like to say my ideal audience are like 11 year olds hanging out at barnes and noble who like stumble <laughs> on this thing and are like what's this cool book and then like read it and they're like this is so awesome I think the appeal for older kids with Wander Home, if they're not the sort of kids who need, you know, explosions to capture their attention, which I wasn't always, but I could sometimes be, then Wander Home gets you when you realize that it goes deep, which is, I think, the trick of it, which is throughout the playbooks, throughout the pick lists, throughout all of that. I really loved how one person described it in a zine, which was there are these um, little symbols that mark traumatized traits that mark signs that this particular npc the trait associated with them like comes from trauma and it's this little double dagger symbol and it's ostensibly in order to make sure you know if you don't want to deal with that stuff in your game you can spot it easily but the reality is that as you read the book they become like little scar marks on the pages right and you get a sense of like the fact that the world of Wanderhome is not a place that has been a perfect pastoral happy land forever yeah it's not unbounded by time like in wind in the willows it's an eternal halcyon but in Wanderhome, your character fought in a revolution potentially there are references to the revolution there are references to the people who once ruled this place there are references to places still ruled by those people the weight of war and like mass disabling events and pain and devastation show up sprinkled at the edges of the text uh-huh. and when you start looking for them and when you start being like i want to find the melancholy here you start digging in very deep and that's when wander home kind of gets you yeah the trick that i try to pull off is that if you're here for sweet bunny fun time adventures it's got you you'll be happy you'll get something out of it if you s- notice the melancholy edge and you dig deep you fall into the rabbit hole, <laughs> if you would, you know? Yeah. And then you start being like, how do these characters fit together? You know, what does it mean if our characters were all once part of the revolution? And at this point, when I play it with people, I go, like, dark. Like, one of my most recent games, I played with a couple friends where it was like, I was a little kid, and Brennan Lee Mulligan was the veteran, and he, like, found me orphaned on a battlefield, and he adopted me. And so I'm a rambunctious little kid but he knows, like, what I've been through. Yeah. And, like, him and Gion's character are both political refugees fleeing from this, like, other land. And the area we're traveling through is ruled by the King of the Floating Mountain. So we're having to, like, spend time with rebels and hit border checkpoints as we, like, go down this river. But the thing is, is we're not focused on, like, oh, it's not a stealth game. It's not a... 
you know, King of the Floating Mountain killing game. It's a game about like, oh, let's focus on the daily lives of the rebels. Let's, you know, hang, you know, we're staying at this, you know, university professor's house. Let's see what that's like. Let's play with that. And I think that kind of slice of life pastoral game, but it is, is becoming more and more popular. You know, there are mm-hmm. a lot of games out there that kind of deal with less the mm-hmm. extraordinary and more kind of the, the mundane profane stuff that people yeah. deal with every day. And like mm-hmm. what it feels like to do that as this person, what it feels like to do like as that person. And mm-hmm. as you said, there's a lot of tying into personal or non-personal trauma there you know like societal trauma as well i i think that's a really interesting space to explore but also it sounds really cute so (laughs) we're in a spot right now where uh escapism is really nice sure i think that the problem with a lot of escapism and what people are realizing is that pure sashran fantasy times where nothing has ever been bad feels really hollow when we live in a world where we cannot imagine what it's like for the world to heal you know what i mean like yeah it is so difficult for me to picture communities of people who are not fundamentally shaped by trauma and so i think that people are starting to find a lot of like delight and pleasure in worlds that are hopeful and you know like gentle and compassionate and you know, like feel very loving, but aren't dishonest about it. Like the thing I often say is that like, for me, you know, sadness without joy feels grimdark and edgy and joy without sadness feels candy-like and unreal. Mm -hmm. Like in Sleepaway, Sleepaway is a horror game, but there's also a lot of care kind of bundled in the middle of it. Yeah. Uh, And then Wander Home is a very caring game, but there's a lot of hurt kind of hidden in the middle of it. And I think that's kind of how I like my games right now, where it's like, I want, I want worlds that are either I am trying to love someone in a brutal world. I'm trying to find moments of joy in a brutal world, or I am trying to, you know, recognize my own hurt while in a beautiful world. You know, like the world around me is good. I carry this hurt. I'm trying to heal, you know? I think that's a really interesting space to examine, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's sort of a, a, I don't know if it's a study or whether it's just a truism, but people talk about like how in times of economic despair and where people are feeling really not positive, like monster films become really popular. Yeah. I wonder if kind of the converse is true for TTRPGs, you know, because <laughs> there's a lot of these pastoral and slice of life games that kind of take, yeah, take things down a notch. And like, yeah. it's not so like violent and realistic. It's more, how can we be good to each other? Well, I think what's really striking is that I think we are, we are driven to the extremes. I think especially since, uh, societally we, we're really fed up with morally gray muddy things i think we're we're much more interested in things that take a bald stance mm-hmm. but i mean i think it's no coincidence that some of the largest games coming out of the osr right now is stuff like morkborg or mothership stuff that is thematically and aesthetically very polar opposites of stuff like wander home <laughs> yeah which i love i own morkborg i'm excited to own mothership they're fascinating games and What's striking is that they show like, you know, there are many different responses to hurt. And I think all of these games, I think these kind of more brutal, gritty games and these more sweet, you know, kind of pastoral, slice of lifey games, they're all kind of coming from the same desire where it's like we live in a, in a painful world 
and we want to take a stance and we want to really have a feeling about it and put that feeling into our art. And maybe that feeling is, God, I wish I was somewhere else. And maybe that feeling is, I think oftentimes with these grittier games, why are politicians just sitting there while the world is burning? Yeah. Ah, you know, the, the world isn't fair. I want to make a game about how the world isn't fair. I want someone to hear me. And that, you know, like, and so I think that there are many different responses. I think you're right about monster movies, which is that monster movies themselves are really satisfying when the world is hard. And I think that all of kind of a lot of the cultural zeitgeist is really motivated by thinking about when the world is hard, <laughs> you know, because it is. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. There's an interesting thing uh, I, I saw on YouTube, I think, that was about the difference between Independence Day, which came out just before 9-11, and War of the Worlds. That was, I think, someone's take on War of the Worlds. Is that the Matt Damon one, or is it... Maybe? It, it came out, like, right after 9-11. Uh, it's really crap. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's bad. It's a bad movie. But one of the big differences is that Independence Day revels in destruction in a very unreal yeah. way because it's very unreal for the people living in the 90s. Yeah. Whereas the Bad War of the Worlds movie like goes way too hard on depicting uh suffering and torment and you know the actual horrors of seeing things blow up because it was made right after 9/11 in America. Right. Yeah. I think games kind of end up in a similar space where it's like we can't make Independence Days anymore. You know what I mean? There's no fun for me, in depicting, like, you know, a pandemic, for example, which was once a common p- thing people would reach for when trying to show how their setting is, and now is, like, a common thing on, you know, like, people's lines and veils. Yes. You know, like, I think overnight, I know lots of people, myself included, where it's like, oh, this game referenced a pandemic as part of its world building, and I am going to cut that. Because <laughs> we don't want that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it feels weird now, because it feels real now. Yeah. You know, there was a huge, like, global cultural shift last year that has changed how all of us relate to each other and to our art. And it means that I think it's going to indicate a pivot in the way we really relate to art. And it's going to indicate a lot more stuff, I suspect, that is really invested in, I think, taking a stance, even if they're very different stances. Absolutely. On that note, what sort of projects have you got lined up for the future, Jay? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, Yazeba's Bed and Breakfast is the next big thing. Um, so that is a project. We have a whole team. It's not just me. It's a great team of writers, uh, M. Veselek, uh, Mercedes Acosta, Lily Harris, and then, you know, like folks in RPGs and outside. We've got a great team of artists and we're making this slice of life game. I think you'll think it's really neat. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Thank you. It's about a magical bed and breakfast uh, and the folks who live there. It does a lot of cool mechanical stuff. Uh, for example, there's no set rules. The rules it gets are from each chapter. Like you play these episodic like mini adventures that each contain oh, cool. their own rule system. Uh huh. Your character sheet like fits into that where it's like your character sheet has like bingos and whoopsies. <laughs> One chapter might be like, oh, those are like strong and weak moves. Whereas another chapter might be like, actually, we're using coin flips as a randomizer and bingos are like special maneuvers and whoopsies are fail states. And then another chapter might be like, those are the same thing. We don't care. They're just actions you take. So like mechanically, it's very interesting. It's very like, it feels almost like a a big thing. And then 
What I love about it is it's legacy. It's very legacy inspired. And so when whenever you complete a chapter, you make a little bit of progress towards unlocking future chapters. When you make choices about your character, those remain on your character, even as other people pick up that pre-gen character and play them. And so what you're kind of left with is like, if I ran a one shot with you and you played as Gertrude and you completed Gertrude's journey... The next person to pick up Gertrude, the next person I ran a one-shot with, would be impacted by your choices. That's very exciting. It's a game that, at first glance, appears very static. You have these pre-gen characters with these preset environments, but as you play it, it grows. And it grows and it grows and it grows. The play kit is available right now on my itch.io. That kind of gives you a, a taste of, here's some of the characters, here's some of what it's like to unlock things. But the full thing is is going to be a behemoth and the Kickstarter is coming in March 2022. Well, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Please, everybody go and check that out. If you are from the future, <laughs> as I imagine some of my guests mm-hmm. will be, and, if, and it's March 2022, you know, you need to you need to be following. Yeah. I am really excited for that project. A lot of the stuff we've, we talked about with Wanderhome, Yuseb is kind of plays up again. It's a, it's an interesting thing. But yeah. It sounds wonderful. Yeah. Mike, go and buy the play kit now. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's free. It's free. Go, go grab it. Go grab it. It's like 50 pages and it's free. I'm a lunatic. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's advertising. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll sell the book. <laughs> absolutely. Well, I think on that note then, uh, Jay, would you like to tell us where we can find you on the internet? Yeah. Absolutely. You can find me on Twitter at Jay Dragsky. Uh, I am the most notable jay dragon on twitter i can no longer say i'm the only one because i found out there's another fellow with that name who does adult entertainment interesting (laughs) i know uh i think for him it's a pseudonym (laughs) though uh you can also find uh possum creek games which is uh the publishing company i work with i'm the editorial director we are on twitter at possum underscore creek we're also on instagram and uh, our website is possumcreekgames.com you can check out all of our great games we have a patreon where I do lots of little discussions. I post articles. I post things in advance. Patreon is how we, you know, stay afloat because uh, the industry is very feast or famine. You know how it is. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, go check us out. Go check out our stuff. Go buy Wanderhome. It is a very beautiful book. We didn't even talk about all the art in it. So if you want to see some beautiful art and play a gorgeous game that I'm pretty sure would be good with your kids, you should go pick that up. I think so. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And uh, I guess all that remains for me to say is thank you very much for coming on Yes Indeed Pod. And yeah, good luck with your bed and breakfast thing next year. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm excited for everyone to see it. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Jay for the interview. As always, you can find all of the links in the episode description. The first interview of 2022 is with Adam and Thryn of Thirtive Shambles, makers of the incredible Powered by the Apocalypse game Rhine, and hosts of the wonderful actual play podcast These Blimsy Rituals. I can't wait for you to hear this interview, so tune in in January to find out more. This week, an advert for The Eye of Everywhere, an indie-produced 5th edition setting with mechanical add-ons, on Kickstarter this month. Are you tired of waiting for Planejammer? Well, The Eye of Everywhere has got you covered. The Eye of Everywhere is the crossroads of the multiverse with 13 distinct and detailed factions, new playable races, subclasses, a fresh take on the Scion, and so much more. Use it as a bridge between different settings or as the basis for a campaign of its own right. Fantasy and sci-fi come together for fun and adventure in The Eye of Everywhere. The creators are also teaming up with Esper Genesis for equipment lists and compatibility with Pathfinder, so it's going to be great. Search The Eye of Everywhere on Kickstarter now or follow the link in the episode description. This week, I'd like to thank all of my incredible Patreon backers, Alex Reinhardt, Samantha Lee, Georgie Batts, and Sean Patrick Kane, who are always delightful to hear from and to talk to. Thank you so much to all of you. 
And you, yes you, can get a regular shout out and joyful thanks too if you go to patreon.com slash yesindeedpod and sign up today. You'll get access to our Discord server where we can hang out and chat, and even join monthly editing streams and the Yes Indeed Pod book club. Most of the money will go directly to creators rather than to me, so you'll be investing directly in the indie scene to make it a healthy and inclusive place for years to come. And if you can't commit regularly, you can always help out by rating and reviewing the show wherever you find your podcasts, or by donating through the Ko-Fi page at ko-fi.com slash yesindeedpod. Of course, you can always reach out to me through Twitter at yesindeedpod, that's Y-E-S-I-N-D-I-E-D-P-O-D. I'd love dearly to hear from you. And lastly, music credits. The intro music is by my wonderfully talented friend Gemma Hooper, and the outro music and interstitials are from BitQuest by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and Filmmusic.io. Thank you so much, Gemma and Kevin. And until next year, remember, does Indy need you? Yes, indeed.